0: You're listening to Sermon Audio from Providence Baptist Church. Be sure to check out pbcfrankfort.org for more information. If you have your Bibles, if you turn to Matthew 19, we're going to be looking at the second part of that passage we looked at last week with the rich young ruler, the rich young man. Uh, It's Matthew 19. We're going to be in verses 23 through 30 today. So Matthew 19, 23 uh, through 30, and I want to give just a recap from last week in case you missed us last week or in case you just, uh, it's flown kind of out of your head from last week. Uh, We had that interaction between this individual and Jesus, and uh, there were three things we really sort of took from last week's message. One is that the man came to Jesus really kind of seeking salvation. He wanted to know what he would do to inherit eternal life. Uh, which is essentially salvation, and he wanted him on his terms. He, he wanted to know what good deed did he have to do to achieve that. And so he wanted it on his terms. And if you remember from last week, Jesus responds back with the, uh, to have him obey the commandments. And so now the man shifts to the work piece of salvation. Oh, okay, well, which ones? What, what, what's the bare minimum that I have to do to inherit eternal life? What's the bare minimum work that I need to do? And so Jesus responds to him with a few of those commandments. We talked to him about it last week. They were the horizontal commandments that deal with our interactions with people uh, as we go through our lives. And then ultimately, Jesus tells him, well, he says, I've done all that. What else is there left? And he says, "Uh, you lack one thing. Go and sell all you have. Give it all away to the poor and come and follow me. And the man couldn't do it. At least in that moment. And we talked about the reality is that salvation, eternal life, this, this, this newness of life comes by us submitting our lives fully before Jesus. Not holding anything back. Asking Jesus on a daily basis, is there one thing I still lack and then following him in obedience with that. So today what we're going to talk about is that this interaction that he has with this young man presents Jesus a teachable moment for the disciples and for us as recorded in the Gospels. So let's read Matthew chapter 19 verses 23 through 30 and then we'll come back and walk through it bit by bit. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last will be first the statement for today's message is this that we sacrifice of our lives with an assurance Jesus has paid the sacrifice that we can't ever pay and that we're not ever asked to pay. He went to the cross uh, to die for my sins and for your sins. He's taken care of that sacrifice. But the Bible makes it clear after then being uh, born again through that faith, through that grace, after then walking in the newness of life, we are called to sacrifice. We're called to sacrifice of ourselves, of our time, of our talents, of our possessions. We're called to live a life of sacrificial giving to the kingdom around us. And so the natural kind of question for anybody to ask is, well, what do I get in return? If you decide today that you're going to get in better shape and you say, I'm going to do that because I'm going to sacrifice blizzards and Reese's peanut butter eggs and extra coffee creamer. The natural thing for you to ask in that moment is, but what am I going to get in return? If I sacrifice all that and I'm only going to lose a pound, I'm probably still eating all of it. So it's a very human, natural thing to say, if we've sacrificed something, what do we get? And so what Jesus is teaching Peter and the disciples and then us today is that we who are called by Christ to live in Christ, to live for the mission, the kingdom, purpose of God... We sacrifice of ourselves with an assurance. So let's walk through it bit by bit. Let's look back again at verses 23 through 26 to begin this process. Jesus starts that section by saying, truly I say to you. Some of the older translations will say verily or assuredly, but it all means the same thing. It's Jesus saying to his disciples and saying to us, pay attention. On Sunday nights, when we were going through the Gospel of John some years ago, uh, we talked about if you were here in those attendance in those nights, we talked about how in John's Gospel, the phrase is always truly, truly. Here, Matthew records in this way, Truly I say to you, when you see that type of language in the Gospels, it is Jesus saying, pay attention, you need to get this. Now, it doesn't mean that the other words that Jesus utters through the Gospels are less important or unimportant. But we understand as we talk to kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews or if you're in charge of kids, you're a a teacher, a coach, uh, you help with an after-school program, whatever the case may be. We understand there are times we say things to kids and then there are times we say things to kids. We want them to hear and receive everything we say, but there are other moments where we want them to definitely get what we're saying. And so this is one of those moments in the gospel that Jesus does this. Truly I say to you, he says, and then he goes on to describe the difficult nature of riches and wealth. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He says only with difficulty can this happen. He doesn't say it's impossible. We'll see that in just a few moments in verse 26. He doesn't say it can't be done, but he says by using this word difficulty, he says it's going to require much effort on, the, on a person with riches and wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's a word that really means belabored. You say, what does belabored mean? Well, if someone belabors a point in a discussion, you're talking about politics, you're talking about an athletic event, you're talking about a movie, you're, you're in a discussion with somebody and they just keep coming back to the same point over and over and over again and you say something and they come back to the same point and it's just this vicious cycle. You would walk away from that conversation saying, man, he or she really belabored that point. Like they just kept repeating it over and over and over again. So Jesus says with difficulty, will a person with great wealth enter the kingdom of heaven? He's essentially saying that it's something that requires repeated attention in the life of a person who possesses great wealth. It's something they have to visit and revisit and revisit and revisit. Why? Because materialism, wealth, riches can be a distraction from the kingdom of God and its work. It would really do us well to consider what the Bible says about distractions for those of us who are following Jesus. Money and wealth and possessions and power and authority are things it speaks of. There are other things it speaks of, things that maybe might surprise you. I'm just going to give you one as an example. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7 and talks about marriage being a distraction. Now, wait, doesn't, doesn't God want everyone to be married and have kids and have 2.3 kids and 1.4 dogs and a white picket fence? And Marriage is a beautiful gift from God. But if we're going to consider the entire sum of Scripture, which is what we should do if we say we are Bible-believing people, we should understand that Paul, as an example, talks about marriage and singlehood. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 32 through 35, he says to the unmarried man, That he's anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But when married, he's anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. He makes the same distinction with the wife. The, The wife who's unmarried is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things. And he sums it up in verse 35. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay restraint upon you. But to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul's not saying don't get married. But he's also saying don't just enter marriage just to get married. He's saying the person who is not married in that situation has a better devotion to the Lord available in their lives. And so there are distractions. Riches and wealth are a distraction. Materialism is a distraction from the kingdom of God. How are they a distraction? How are they difficult for the person who wants to enter the kingdom of God? Well, they can weaken the need for great faith to start with. Riches, wealth, material possessions, even going on to consider this rich young ruler, positions of power and authority, all those things can weaken the need in a Christian for great faith. Many, many years ago, I read this and I've, I've tried to go back and find the book I read it out of, and I, I can't find it, but it's a phrase that stuck with me for all these years. The individual wrote, It's easy to pray, give us this day our daily bread, when the cupboard is full or the grocery is close by. You, you pray that piece of prayer that Jesus teaches in Matthew, give us this day our daily bread, and then you go, oh, now I can just walk down the hall and get it. That's a different prayer than give us this day our daily bread. I don't have any, I don't have any money, I don't have any way to get to the grocery. And so riches and wealth and material possessions can weaken our need for great faith. They can weaken our longing for heaven. We have riches, we have wealth, we have material possessions. We live lives where we essentially have everything we want here on earth. We go to our favorite vacation places twice a year. We check off everything on our bucket list. There's nothing we can't have. There's nothing we can't do. There's nowhere we can't go. That doesn't really create a longing for another city or home, does it? So materialism is a great enemy. Wealth and riches can be a great enemy to kingdom life because it alleviates our need for faith faith or weakens it. It weakens our desire sometime to leave this world and to be at home with the Lord. Now, it does not mean, though, again, in context of this teaching, doesn't mean that person who has riches and wealth can't be saved. Jesus just says it's with difficulty. It's with difficulty that it happens. Look at verse 25. The disciples heard this. They were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. They respond to Jesus' teachings in astonishment. Who can be saved if not rich people cannot enter the kingdom of heaven? Why did they say it in that sense? Because they lived under a time, they lived under a teaching, where wealth and riches and material possessions were seen as evidence of God's favor on your life. If you had that in their culture you were seen as someone who had great favor with God. Fast forward a couple thousand years, do we not still have that false teaching in our churches? It goes by a different name these days, the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel. But it is this teaching that only if you have great wealth, great riches, great possessions, great power, great authority, only if you have those things can you clearly say that God is blessing you in your life. And so the disciples asked this question based on that teaching. And I I want you to hear me on this. this. This is part of the reason why we began back in the fall this third Thursday theology series every month. Because stuff like that that only if you have things does it mean God has blessed you, is a result of poor theology. It's a result of poor teaching. It's a result of poor reading and understanding and application of the scriptures. And so we need to understand that when they ask that question, and when we see it even within our own days, that there are preachers who stand up in pulpits or on stages or fly around to different concert avenues and areas and arenas and say, if God really loves you, you'll have everything you want. That is theology to run away from. Because Jesus says just the opposite it's not that it keeps you from it, but it's going to be a hindrance. Because this is the main question about riches and wealth. Do we possess them or do they possess us? It's not that you can't have it. But do you possess it or does it possess you? For the rich young man, clearly in this moment, it possessed him. Because when Jesus asked him to give it all up and follow him, he could not do it. So we see that. Peter sees that. The disciples see this. And then Peter has a question, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? So Peter has a question, just like the rich young man had a question. He had a question of what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the bare minimum I need to do, Jesus, to get in? Peter then, on the heels of this, has his own question. Well, what about us? What was Peter's motive? Well, perhaps it was just simply that he wanted to gain some assurance for himself and for his disciples. He, he tends to be a person in the Gospels who speaks on behalf of the rest of them. So maybe he was doing that. Maybe it was a, a subtle or a not so subtle way to remind Jesus of what the disciples had done and how it was the opposite of what the rich young man had done. Think back to that story from last week. Jesus says to him, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, and come follow me. Look again how Peter phrases the question or the statement in question. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And there are many who are critical of Peter's question here, that he's being very selfish in asking it. And that's certainly a possibility and certainly a place where I was a long time ago, but as I've studied more and more of this, I don't think Peter's question here is of a selfish nature. And there's two reasons why. Number one is this it's the way Jesus responds to him. There's another place in the Gospels where Jesus is talking about that he would be going and dying and being raised up again after three days. And uh, Peter basically says in those places in the Gospels, no, not you. You don't have to do that. Uh, there, there's a different plan for you. And if you know those stories well in the Gospels, you know that what Jesus does is he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. He responds to Peter in that moment in a very harsh he does not do that here in this moment he does not rebuke Peter's question he just answers it as we'll see in just a moment secondly I think it's fair to say that Peter was just asking the statement because again it is sort of human natural in uh, curiosity to inquire what about me what about us See what, see what I've done, see what we've done, and what's going to become of us. And then, thirdly, I think it's natural for Peter to have asked this because God's word does speak about eternal rewards. In Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus is tying up the Beatitudes there in the first part, he talks in verse 12 about being persecuted for his sake. And he says, Great is your reward in heaven. 1 Corinthians 3. Paul speaks to the Corinthian church and speaks to them of that their works will be examined. And their works will be examined and either rewarded and gold and silver will be burned up in hay. Paul talks in 2 Timothy about a crown of righteousness that he would receive and that all who welcome Jesus coming will receive. Peter talks in 1 Peter 5 about an unfading crown of glory that we will receive in heaven. James 1.12 says of receiving the crown of life. So the Bible clearly speaks of, God's word clearly speaks of the fact that there will be rewards eternally for those who are faithful. And knowing that, and knowing that that even was an Old Testament teaching as well throughout the Jewish faith, Peter's question here is quite understandable. But it helps us to then think in, the, in terms of these ways. Your greatest reward eternally, my greatest reward eternally, is Jesus. Period. There's nothing that you or I will get that Jesus has not allowed us to get. There's no amount of faithfulness on my part or your part or anybody's part on this this earth. But what is not faithfulness that is given to us by Jesus, the empowerment of the Spirit, the truth of God's Word, to be faithful in situations that then allow us to look forward to rewards. You may have grown up hearing, as I did quite often, that we'll lay all of our crowns at Jesus' feet. I want to read to you from Revelation 4, because you may not know where that exists. In Revelation 4, John's seeing this eternal picture. In beginning verse 9, he writes, "...whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, who is Jesus." And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. See, if you've ever heard that as a kid or a young adult growing up, well, anything you receive as a heavenly reward is just going to be given back to Jesus. That's where it comes from. That in heaven the reality for us is going to be faithfulness on earth resulted in us getting some great things the crown of righteousness the crown of life all of these things that scriptures talk about but ultimately what it gains us is to be in his presence forever and because he's the one that makes our very faithfulness possible we give it all back to him See, Peter's question is understandable, and it's right for him to ask, but the understanding that Jesus is going to give him in his answer is that, yes, you're going to get something, but the greatest thing you're going to get is eternal life. Look how Jesus answers it in verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, said to them, he doesn't just say to Peter, but says to them, Truly I say to you, there's that phrase again, In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, those of you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he's speaking directly to the disciples. And then he includes everyone else, you and me included, who know Jesus. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. I'll come back to that and in just a moment. I want to talk about this issue of what he says here in verse 28, the new world. Some of your translations use the word in the new or in the regeneration. It's a word that means to take something that exists and refashion it, repurpose it for something new. So Jesus is speaking that there will be a time, we, we know it because again we understand the sum of scripture. We know it to be the time that Revelation talks about the new heavens and the new earth. That when the kingdom is fully set up here, but it is that which exists being repurposed or refashioned into something new. The only other place in scripture where this particular word is used is in Titus chapter 3. In Titus chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, it says this, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You say, why, why did I include that? Why did I make this point That's only used two places? When I said yes to Jesus at age six... Jesus didn't tear me physically apart. He didn't remove my brain and remove my lungs and take off my legs and rearrange them. He made me new. He repurposed me in the form in which I already existed. So when he says in the new age or in the regeneration there in verse 28 in Matthew, he's speaking of these new heavens and these new earths, this time when the kingdom will come and be a part of this forever and ever and ever, amen, repurposing what already exists for its new great and glorious grand purpose of the kingdom of God. When I was thinking through this this week and making notes and so on and so forth, I thought about Ryan and Jess Tingle and their business. Right, like They, they get a piece of furniture and they, they strip away the varnish and the old paint and maybe the hardware that's broken and so on and so forth, but then they, they repurpose it, they refashion it. They don't take it all together and reassemble it. and They, they take it and they repurpose it or refinish it, or make it new as it exists, just in a new way. Jesus says, in that age, here's what you're going to receive. To the 12, he says specifically, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. To everybody else... Who've left father and mother and houses and brothers and sisters and land and everything else, you'll receive a hundredfold. Now, Mark and Luke specifically add a hundredfold in this time. Matthew doesn't have that there, but Mark and Luke do. But essentially the teaching is that in this time, in this age, in this day, yes, we're going to get some eternal rewards, but understand that if you are faithful following Jesus, there are going to be rewards that come your way. And Jesus says all of these things, family, houses, land, all of this stuff, was going to be returned to you a hundredfold. How in the world is that possible? Well, here's how it's possible. You may have grown up an only child. But the moment you were saved by Jesus, you have an innumerable amount amount of brothers and sisters in Christ. You may have grown up with one parent or no parents. But the moment you said yes to Jesus, you began to be a part of a family with an untold number of spiritual fathers and mothers. You may find yourself without a home one day. But the hope would be that if you found yourself without a home one day that you would be able to call on an innumerable amount of brothers and sisters and spiritual fathers and mothers and somebody would say come live in my basement or above my garage or somewhere. What Jesus is promising is that on this earth as you and I sacrifice and give he has set up a spiritual family to take care of one another. And if you grew up, my mom grew up as an only child. Her most treasured relationships were her spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is saying, Don't worry about what you lose, understand what you're going to gain. Sacrifice with assurance. But he does so in such a way there as we begin to wrap up, and he says this Look at the end of verse 29 again. He says, You'll receive all those things a hundredfold, meaning here. But then he wraps it up by saying, and will inherit eternal life. And again, that is the ultimate goal. The ultimate reward, the ultimate assurance, the ultimate thing you and I get from being faithful in our sacrifice to him is that we get him. And far from our preconceived media notions of us all sitting on clouds, playing harps, and whiling away the day. Far from that, this is what the Bible gives us as a sneak peek from Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and earth had passed away, the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man." He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. The reward is the reaffirmation or the reoccurrence or the taking back or the reclaiming of God's original creation. God with Adam and Eve, them being his people, him being their God, Sin enters, fractures all of that. Jesus comes to pay the price. And all who accept Jesus by faith and grace, who are called into this new kingdom of God, that is the reward. It is not the crowns, it is not whether or not you have gold or silver or everything's destroyed by fire. The reward is Jesus. And it is high time the church gets out of the mindset of thinking, oh, this is the way God's gonna pay me back in the in the afterlife. And He's gonna pay me back in this way and this way, and mansions and houses and this and that and fish ponds that don't ever run out and golf clubs that always hit straight. It's Jesus. He is your reward. He is your salvation. He is what gives us this new birth that we're witnessing even outside in creation. And he becomes your reward and mine. So the answer to Peter's question is, see, we've given it all up. What will we get? Jesus says, you get me. The sum of the scriptures say, you get me. You get to be with me. He issues one final teaching point in verse, four, in verse 30. He says, many who are first will be last and the last first. It's a phrase he mentions again in Matthew 20, verse 16, as he talks about the laborers in the vineyard, the, the parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. I would encourage you to read Matthew 20, verse 1 through 16 this week and see where Jesus repeats that. But with this final point, what he stresses to Peter and to the disciples and to us is not everybody who finishes first on this life finishes first. Not everybody who you think has made it, makes it. There was an old saying that he who dies with the most toys wins. That saying got turned around at one point in time in history to say this, he who dies with the most toys still dies. And your toys and my toys and your material possessions and my material possessions and our riches and our wealth and our positions and powers and authorities, none of that is transferable. So don't be deceived into looking around you, church, and saying, well, how come everybody else is doing so well? In Job chapter 21 Job devotes a a whole chapter to it. I encourage you to read Job 21 this week. Because his whole thing before God, and being a man who's had his family taken away from him, who's had all of his possessions taken away from him, his, his flocks and everything else, his whole thing in Job 21 is, the wicked are prospering, not me. In Psalm 73, this is what the psalmist begins in that psalm. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why had he nearly tripped up in his walk of following God? He answers in verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is saying, I I, I almost slipped out of the path of following you, God. God. Because I became envious of seeing the wicked and the arrogant around me prosper. And he was not. Jeremiah, it's a common thing through the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 12 begins this way Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Don't get caught up in thinking that those who are around you who are prosperous and thriving are those who are going to prosper and thrive forever. Because if Hebrews over the last year taught us nothing else, it's that this is not our home. This is not where we are destined to thrive. This is not where we are destined to prosper. In Christ, we are destined to To prosper and thrive with him in a new heavens and a new earth where he is with us all along. And that becomes the goal for those of us who, as Paul calls, are citizens of heaven. I'll close you here with this. When we were living in Honduras and got to come home and visit before we had to come home for good. As we lived in Honduras, we were... Residents of Honduras but we were citizens of America and as much as we love Honduras and the people and the culture and as much as we miss all of that and and as much as missionaries all over the world in various places deal with those types of situations and emotions I, I think if they would be completely honest with you most of them would say but man we really like going back home we did it was tough it was difficult to go from that Area of the world to this area of the world and its excess and everything else. But I'll be honest with you, it was also really nice to come back to where you didn't have a limit on water for the month and it was always hot and nobody was telling you, hey, when you're taking a shower, don't let any of the water in your mouth because if you do, you might get an infection. It was nice. It was nice to be in Honduras and think, man, next month we're going to be back in the States. As citizens of heaven, daily, our thoughts ought to be, man, I cannot wait to be in my true home. I cannot wait to be in my forever residence. Oh, this world has some things to offer. It has some nice places to go and see. There's, there's some geographical places that you might have on a bucket list that you really hope to see before you die. But all of that will pale in comparison to the glory of the new heavens and the new earth in which God dwells with his people. And so as citizens of heaven, we sacrifice... Without asking the question, well, what's in it for us, God? Because we know what's in it for us. The Bible has made it clear. The question is really this. Do we trust that? Do we trust that what we read and say and preach and teach is really the way it's going to be? You say, how do I know how I'm answering that? Well, the way you live is how you're answering that. If Jesus is saying to you and me, here's your one thing, and we're going, oh, nope, I'm going to hold on to that one, then we don't trust. But if he says to you and me, here's your one thing, leave it, put it aside, push it behind you, get away from it, and follow me, then we know we trust. And as we saying, then we know we trust. And obey. Do you trust him? you trust him to save you? Do you trust him for everything else? I pray we do. Thanks for listening. If you have any thoughts, questions, or prayer concerns, please email us at pbcfrankford at gmail.com.